After countless rehearsals, Benjamin Franklin was ready. There was just one problem. The weather had to be on his side. After all, lightning doesn't strike every day. At this time in his life, Franklin was obsessed with electricity, and he wanted to know exactly how similar it was to lightning. His best bet was using the steeple on Philadelphia's Christ Church, but that was still under construction. And so, Franklin had to do what he had done so many times before, find a creative solution. He was, after all, the poster child of the Enlightenment. Electricity, it wasn't a sign of displeasure from the gods. It was a power to understand, to harness. It just took somebody with the brio to tame Earth's radiant whip. Thank goodness Franklin had plenty of brio. As every school child learns, he tied the key to a silk kite. Eventually, lightning appeared and the string began to tighten. Franklin placed his knuckle close to the key and sparks emerged. Elation, curiosity, wonder, all the feelings of a genius followed. Now, let me just mention, there is historic debate on the validity of Franklin's experience, especially because there aren't any first-hand accounts. Franklin only discusses it after it was supposed to have happened. But most historians agree that he was never duplicitous when discussing his other experiments. There's no reason to doubt his accounts of the event, so we'll just have to take him at his word, which is quite literally what this episode is about. Words. As exciting as Franklin's experiments were to the general public, what is often overlooked is his contribution to the language of electricity. He was a typeset printer after all, so in a very physical sense, he was a wordsmith. He would have absorbed a vocabulary by literally placing each letter in their appropriate place. Consider the day that really sparked his interest. See what I did there? A friend of his knew that Franklin was determined to get answers about electricity. So he lent him a strange tube that garnered static. But Franklin couldn't get enough of it. The tube was incomplete. It needed refinement. So he asked a glassblower and a silversmith to improve it. Now he had something to work with. Well, sort of. By nature, Franklin was a social creature, and he was always wrangling his friends into a half-cocked experiment. Once he rigged a small static charge that connected to glasses of wine. It sent a small and supposedly pleasurable jolt to his guests as they sipped on their glasses. And let us not forget this more uh, notorious failure. On Christmas Day in 1750, as New England grew quiet and the snow drew in families to their home, what was Franklin doing? Well, he was too excited to tell his brother John about his latest incident with electricity. There were always shocking things to report. I'm sorry, there's another one. I have made an experiment in electricity that I desire never to repeat, he wrote him. With such an introduction, you'd expect lightning pulsing through his body or 
falling off a steep church roof. Instead, Franklin just wanted to cook a turkey. Yeah, he was convinced that electricity would make a holiday turkey far more tender. Franklin took two premature vials and connected to exposed wire. The problem was he was also holding a chain. Bad move. Suddenly, a thunderous crack filled the air. And it followed by a translucent flash. His body shook violently, and it took hours for his senses to return. His ego, however, took far longer to heal. In all of these experiments, he learned not only about the physics of electricity, but how to define it. He explained to a colleague in London, someone he thought that would recognize the impact of his work. We say B is electricized positively, A negatively. Or rather, B is electricized plus and A minus. Did you catch the words Franklin used? This was actually the first usage of electric terms that we still use today. He invented others too, words like conductor, battery, or charge. They all came from the mind of Benjamin Franklin. And ever the statesman, he downplayed his contribution. These terms we may use until your philosophers give us better. Oh, Franklin, don't you be coy. Both you and I know there would never be a philosopher to improve your terms. Which was true. The definitions stuck because words do matter. Franklin understood that. It's time we do the same. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. In each episode, you'll get one small action that you can do today so you flourish at work, home, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. I want to begin by apologizing. This episode is obviously about words, and so far you've had to endure some pretty bad puns. But a caution now to all of you listeners, because, well, there's probably going to be a few more. As I read Franklin's letters and the language he used to define his experiences, it reminded me of George Lakoff's research in Metaphors We Live By. There are some books that we read that often just wrap us up, and that was one of them for me. Lakoff expands on the neural theory of language and shows that often we use words to simplify concepts in our mind with metaphors. And they have become so common we rarely recognize we're using them in our everyday language. I was glued to my seat watching the movie. I'd say the boy was a late bloomer. My wife gave me the cold shoulder. But Lakoff ensures us that they are much more than poetic or linguistic expressions. Metaphors have a significant impact on how we perceive our experiences and especially impact the potential actions we're willing to take as a result. 
Take, for example, one of Franklin's most popular metaphors. Time is money. Because we see time as money, it becomes a commodity. And as a result, we filter our experiences that way too. I've invested a lot of time in her. Can you lend me your time? We need to buy ourselves some time. We've lost too much time to make up the difference. This concept, it wouldn't leave me for months. So I'm going to ask you what I kept asking myself then. What would happen if you deliberately change your common metaphors or the language we use to describe the most important areas of our lives? Let's change Franklin's metaphor, for example. Time isn't money anymore. Let's say time is a gift. Suddenly, we start to filter experiences by saying, thank you for your time, or time as a teacher. Well, now I'd say something like, time heals all wounds. You can even get crazy with it. Let's say time is a river. Well, now I'll start to flow through this life. But here is the catch. Most of us unwittingly create subtle metaphors based on how an experience made us feel. That trip to Cancun was a riot, or my previous marriage was a marathon. For example, many years ago, I invested in a startup with my dad. I loved the idea of us having our own project together. We weren't active in the business, at least to start, and we totally trusted the founders. But things went south quickly. Well, there's a directional metaphor for you, south. It seemed the founders weren't nearly as honest about their abilities or past experiences in similar businesses. And this was a problem because neither my dad nor I knew anything about the industry. But we had to do something, right? I mean, we had invested a lot of important capital. Both of us left our other jobs And each morning, very early, we woke up trying to save the company, trying to save our investment. I also started to take psychological ownership of other people's roles and their mistakes, and it weighed on me. The stress was crippling. While driving one day to work, I felt a sharp pain in my stomach, and I nearly drove right off the on-ramp. And that's not a metaphor. I literally turned my car off the road to catch my breath turns out I had ulcers, the first of three different bouts. Next, my weight dropped, like really dropped. I lost 25 pounds in a matter of months, but we weathered the storms, mistake after mistake, over and over, and through it all, it built inner confidence. We didn't need to know what others knew about this industry. We just needed to know about our company, our customers. So I'll never forget that fateful day. My dad and I looked at each other in a meeting. Son, he said, we can either pack it all in and take our losses, or we can try one more time. Well, we decided to go for it. But this time, we were going to do it our way. So we designed a product that helped customers keep their weight loss habits. We made sure first that the product worked, and then second, that it looked really good. It wasn't long until it started to pick up steam. And suddenly, we had someone who was interested in the company, someone willing to take on the burden 
that was actually forced upon us. When I retell this experience today, I relate it as a battle. That was my unintentional metaphor. And as a result, it conjures up gruesome memories. I even remember a specific moment when I went to the bathroom, looked in the mirror at my sunken cheeks, and felt beaten. It was truly one of the low moments of my life. And even today, I talk about the scars it left. And if I have a meeting with creative founders of companies, and I'm talking about great men and women, the salt of the earth type, I still enter those meetings with armor. Do you hear the unintentional metaphor that I used, that battle? But more importantly, did you hear how that metaphor surfaced attitudes that followed the theme? Things like painful, beaten, armor. That's all battle language. That's the impact of a metaphor. How we define our experiences quite literally dictate the attitudes and behaviors we're willing to adopt. Which is when I came up with a process to help you create something better. And it's our microbehavior for today. Here it is. Are you ready? I call them intentional metaphors. Instead of trying to define how an experience made us feel, intentional metaphors create language around what an experience did for us, what we learned as a result. Suddenly, we craft language that embodies what the term means in the Greek, metaphorian, which is to carry over or transfer. Intentional metaphors transfer us from a fixed to a growth mindset. Your experiences deserve a meaningful metaphor. And if you go to mymicrobehaviors.com, you can get a template to help you create your own intentional metaphors. Here's how it works. You'll first take a meaningful experience, a challenge, a potential learning situation, and write down three positive things this experience has done for you. Let's take my investment experience, for example. Instead of focusing on all of the battle feelings, I might say, one, I was able to get a reoccurring income after the company was sold. Two, it taught me to value my family over finances. Three, I learned how to be patient with very different personalities, some egos, the smarmy, the timid, the strong. I was forced to work with all of them. Now, this is where intentional metaphors get really fun. Take a moment and examine your list of three positive outcomes and think of a completely unrelated object that does the very same thing. An ATM doles out cash. Well, that works for reoccurring income. That's good, okay, but it doesn't feel quite right. What about the family over finances? Well, there are a lot of things that do that. Therapy, family dinner, but those don't feel right either. And the third one where I learned patience by working with different personalities. What else teaches patience? Huh. Well, parenting, waiting at a doctor's office, sitting through church as a kid. Well, that's it. That's the one that feels right. That is my intentional metaphor. This investment experience was a long meeting for a little child. That's it. And what's the impact of that metaphor? 
Well, remember, metaphors literally dictate the attitudes and behaviors we're willing to adopt. Suddenly, the experience goes from a battlefield to a learning environment. Was it tough in there? Well, you bet. I was squirming the whole way through it, just as my kids do during church. But just like my kids, they're learning lessons about love and enduring to the end. And then those different personalities, they aren't adversaries. They become speakers, people worth listening to, if even for short bursts, given my limited attention. And my experience in the bathroom, well, that turns from being beaten to, well, a budding businessman. The moment I started to use this language when discussing that experience, not only did my attitudes shift, but my behaviors did too. Now, when I enter a meeting with potential founders, I don't get my armor on. I go in as a child, wanting to soak in what they have to offer. This metaphor was liberating. And don't worry if your intentional metaphor isn't Shakespeare. It's not meant to endure centuries. It's meant to open up new attitudes and behaviors. Intentional metaphors are for you. This microbehavior, though, it's a start. And we need to continuously assess our metaphors and the language we internalize. Because if you think about it, metaphors are incomplete. Lakoff says it this way, Time isn't really money. If you spend your time trying to do something and it doesn't work, you can't get your time back like money. There are no time banks. But even just investing a little time with this template works wonders helping you collect powerful words that convey an enriched understanding. And then you become that which Franklin was really looking for, philosophers for your own life.